Well, hey guys, this is Ken, Virtual Ken, broadcasting live from the deep within the bunker here at Christ Chapel in the basement. No, actually, I'm in the sanctuary all by myself, except for a handful of faithful AV and sound people who are making this possible. I want to thank you guys for tuning in each week as we uh, present these videos to you, and I hope they're helpful and beneficial. The saddest part is not just that I'm by myself, it's that this is the last video in this series. We're going to wrap up the book of Judges during this lesson. It's lesson 13, and we've covered a lot of territory, and we're going to go out with a bang because this last three chapters, these last three chapters, are jam-packed. They're incredible. If you got a chance to read them, which I hope you did, you've seen that this thing ends not on a high note, but on a really low note. And so we're going to discover what's really going on in the nation of Israel and what does it have to do with us living all these centuries later here in Fort Worth, Texas, Tarrant County, Parker County, Johnson County? What's it got to do with us? And I think you'll find out that there's a lot that we can learn from these last three chapters. So let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this time together with these men, and I pray that you would use me to communicate your word in a way that is uh, helpful, that's enlightening, uh, that is hopefully convicting where it needs to be convicting. But Father, I also pray that we would be encouraged by what we hear because it's ultimately all about you, all about a God who loves us, uh, who is fully in control, who knows exactly what's going on in our lives, around our lives, in our world, just as you did back during the days of the judges. So Father, would you speak to us today? And we give you this time together, and I pray this in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Well, this is week 13, as I said, and as usual, I've given this uh, lesson a, a very long title. It's not as long as the others, but it's, there was no king in Israel. Now, this is not the first time we've heard this statement. We've heard it over and over again. In fact, it's repeated seven different times in the book of Judges and four times in the last three chapters, well, five chapters. And so we're familiar with this statement, and we talked a lot about it last week, that there was no king in Israel. And this week, we're going to take it a step further because we're going to see what happens when the people of God forget God. Now, you may think, well, that's impossible. How do you forget God? Well, we do it every day. Um, we go about our day, we go about our business, we don't talk to him, we don't seek him, we don't uh, talk to him, we don't read his word, we don't pray, we, and we make decisions without talking to him about anything. And it's as if he doesn't exist. And that's really what we're going to see taking place in these last three chapters as we look at them. Now, you're familiar with this verse. This is actually the last verse in the entire book. And it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, we talked last week about the fact that the statement there was no king isn't just talking about the fact there wasn't a human king. The real issue is they're not treating God as king. And that's still going to be true as we look at these last three chapters. Here's the way I've paraphrased it. This is the Ken Miller paraphrased version. In those days, God was not treated as the king of Israel. And as a result, everything everyone did was evil in God's eyes. In other words, when God looked at it, he saw it as evil, wicked, immoral, unacceptable. In their eyes, they thought they were doing the right thing. And again, in these last three chapters, you're going to see that ramped up in a major way where everybody, from the lowest to the highest, 
from the religious to the irreligious. Everybody's doing what they think is right and it doesn't end well. And ultimately it's because they have forgot, forgotten God. Now again, you, you may think, well, I've never forgotten God, but believe me, there are moments in your life, just like my life, where I treat him as if he doesn't exist. I act as if he's not around. I doubt that he's there, or I just make decisions as if he's not there. And that's the case in these chapters. See, God had told the people of Israel long ago that this was gonna happen. He wasn't surprised, he wasn't caught off guard, and he knew that the time would come when they would forget him. And as a result of forgetting him, they would become unfaithful to him. Now see, that's always the danger. When you forget God, when you leave him out of the equation, you will become unfaithful to God. Because if you're not thinking about him, you won't realize that you're being unfaithful. You'll just go about your day doing what you think is right, but all the time acting as if he doesn't exist. So this idea of forgetting and unfaithfulness, again, goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy was written by Moses to the people of Israel when they were standing on the edge of the promised land waiting to go in. And he was directing them. He was instructing them about, hey, when you go in, here's what you need to know. You need to be really careful. Listen to what he says to them. Beware that in your plenty, you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations, and decrees that I'm giving you today. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, and when your flocks and herds have become very large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else, be careful. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from where? From slavery in the land of Egypt. See, here's Moses who led them from Egypt and got them to the promised land 40 years later. He's telling them, hey, when you get in, it's not if, it's when. When you get in and you're blessed by God and all these great things happen, be careful that you don't forget God. See, God knew they were gonna be prone to forgetfulness. As a matter of fact, it goes on in verses eight through 11 in Judges chapter two. Here's what Joshua, remember he was the guy who led them in Moses didn't get to go in. Joshua takes him into the land. He helps them conquer most of the people in the land, but then he's about to die. And here's where it ties back into the Deuteronomy 8 that we just read. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years old. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now we've looked at this passage before in week two. It's not that they didn't know God, it's that they had basically forgotten him. He had become out of sight, out of mind. See, this is a new generation. They didn't come out of Egypt. They didn't wander through the wilderness. They were born after that. And so the older generation dies, and this new generation arrives on the scene, and they have forgotten God. Part of it was because their parents didn't tell them about God. They didn't tell about all the wonderful works of God. And so they began to see this God, Yahweh, as a relic, a leftover from their parents' generation. Well, that's your God. He did great things for you, but he doesn't do, that, do those great things for us. And that's gonna be a real problem as we see in these chapters. Because as they go into the land, they're in the land, they've conquered most of the land, they begin to discover all these other gods. There's not just Yahweh, 
there's Moloch, there's Baal, there's Ashtoreth. There, there's so many other gods. And we've seen in previous chapters how even the judges were prone to worship false gods. So they have all these wonderful options that they can turn to other than Yahweh. And they begin to forget him. And they begin to chase after other gods, other hopes, other sources of help. And yet here's what God said in Deuteronomy through the lips of Moses. Remember the Lord, your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant he confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. Don't forget God. Don't leave him in the past because he is the only key to your success. See, for them, as is true for us, if I leave God out of the equation, I may have what I think is success, but it will not be godly success. It will not be God-ordained success. It may be human success. I may have things that I think I want and I get, but they will never bring me what God desires for me. And that's so true of the people of Israel during this period of time. So no king. Here's the problem with not having a king, and especially God as your king. It became a moral free-for-all. Everybody was doing what they thought was right. There was really nobody containing the people because Moses was gone, Joshua has died, the judges have not yet come. Remember, this is the period before the judges. And so everybody's doing what they think is best for them, either for themselves individually, for their tribe, for their clan, for their family. Everybody's doing what's right for them. So let's look at chapter 19. Here's how it opens. In those days, that should, should sound familiar because that's the way chapter 17 opened up. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her to bring her back. What's going on here? You have to remember the timeline here. And we talked about this last week. In those days, what days? This is the timeline of the book of Judges. Now, you would automatically think in those days means, because these are the last chapters of the book, we're talking about after the death of Samson. Samson died somewhere around 1075 BC. But these last five chapters are a flashback all the way back to 1375 BC. We talked about this last week. Samuel is is really just reversing the tape and taking us all the way back to the very beginning after the death of Joshua. And he's showing us what things were like that led to the need for judges in the first place. Now, one of the other important things to remember is that this was written during the time of the Kings, the period that comes after the period of the judges. And it was written for people living during that time. It was written for Hebrews living under the Kings. And it's telling them what it was like before the first king ever showed up, King Saul. And it's telling them what things were like in Israel before the first judge, Othniel, showed up. And it's not a pretty picture. So chapter 19, I'm just going to summarize these three chapters that we're going to look at very quickly to give you a kind of an overview. Chapter 19 is all about when morality falls to pieces. Remember, it's a moral free-for-all. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And you're going to see the rape and murder of the concubine we just read about. And it's graphic. It's intense. I mean, this is, this is R-rated stuff. But then in chapter 20, we're going to see what happens when the enemy is actually within, not without. 
Your problem is at home, not outside. And we're going to see the slaughter of the Benjaminites. Now, they're a tribe of Israel, and you're going to see them literally almost wiped off the face of the map by their own people. And then finally, chapter 21, when the cure is worse than the disease. You see, when you operate outside of God's will and you operate as if God doesn't exist, you're going to start trying to solve your own problems your own way. And in my life, that doesn't usually work out too well. Uh, when I try to solve my problems, I only make them worse. And that's what happens here. And you're going to see the unjust reward of the wicked. They're going to get what they deserve, but it's going to be done in a very unjust way. The wicked will be punished, but it won't be by the hands of God. It will be by the hands of their own people. And none of this, the saddest thing about these three chapters is that God is nowhere to be seen for the most part till later in the three chapters. So what's going on? Well, we've already said it. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Emphasis on everyone. Remember I said earlier, from the top to the bottom, from the religious to the irreligious, everybody, including the Levite we just got introduced to, are doing what's right in their own eyes. So again, here's an overview of chapter 19. There's a lot in this chapter, and I'm just going to summarize it for us so we can move on. You've got another Levite, just like the one we saw in chapter 17, who's not where he's supposed to be. Remember, the Levites are the tribe who's been set apart by God to minister in the tabernacle later on in, in the uh, temple, and they are priests. And they were to live in one of 48 cities located among the other 11 tribes. They had no land given to them as an inheritance. So this individual, this Levite, who's supposed to be a priest, is not living where he's supposed to be living, just like the Levite we met last week. Verse 1 says he's sojourning in the remote part of Ephraim. That word remote means he's living in the hinterlands. He's living where nobody can find him. And you'll see why in just a minute. We're told he has more than one wife because he has a concubine. A concubine was like a lover, uh, a mistress. You didn't have a concubine if you had a wife. You added it to your wife. In other words, she didn't replace your wife. She was in addition to your wife. And this priest should not have had a concubine, but he did. And it goes on. He drives his wife away. Now, this is a little bit different than maybe what your translations say, and I'm going to read from the Net Bible. It says she got angry with him. Your translation may say that she was unfaithful to him. The problem with that word is it, got, it has multiple meanings. And the more I studied the passage, the more I think this is the meaning. She, she didn't commit adultery. She didn't um, mess around on him. She was angry at him. And I think the text will support that. She was so angry that she left him. She was angry because of the way he treated her. And you're going to see this guy, this Levi, did not treat his wife well, his concubine. And so that's going to add to the story. It's going to take four months. Now think about this. Four months until he actually goes to search for her. That's a long time, guys. If your wife left you and it took you four months to go find her, I would say there's something seriously wrong with your relationship with her. And that's exactly the problem here. It says her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly her, to her and bring her back. He's going to try to win her back over. Remember the other Levite took a goat. And, and, or actually that was Samson. Took a goat to his wife trying to win back her affections. I don't know what this guy tried, but he went four months later trying to win her back with kind words. 
But his father-in-law, and this is where it gets interesting. When he arrives at her father-in-law's house, his father-in-law's house, his father-in-law greets him kindly, but will not let him take his daughter. Now, why? I think it's because of the way he treated this man's daughter. And so he protected her. And multiple times he's going to delay the departure of the two of them. He's going to keep getting him to stay, drinking with him, eating with him. He's delaying the process of them leaving so that he can protect his daughter's life. It says in verse seven, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And again, he's going to delay him for days before he leaves and takes his concubine home. And when he finally leaves, he leaves at dusk. Now, why is this important? because he's going to have to travel when it's almost dark, which was a dangerous thing to do in that day and age. It says, behold, now the day has waned toward evening. It was near dark before he, his servant, and his concubine started heading home to Ephraim from Bethlehem. So as they go along the way, his servant says, hey, it's getting dark. We need a place to stay. Let's stay in Jebus. Now, Jebus is the name of Jerusalem. It's the original name of that city. At this point in time, Jerusalem is not an Israelite city. It's a pagan city. And so this servant, they've gone about six miles. It's already starting to get dark. And he says, hey, let's just stay here. It's, it's near, it's close, it's getting dark. Let's seek shelter. He says, come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. Now keep in mind, this is important to the story. This is a Jebusite, a non-Israelite city. And the servant is saying, let's stay there. But the Levite responds, no, I'm not going to stay there. Here's what he says. We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. Now, Gibeah was an Israelite city. Now, you get what's going on here. The, the Levite is saying, I'm not staying in a pagan city. That's not safe. We're going to stay in an Israelite city. And that's going to set up a contrast here that is incredibly important to the story. This sounds like wisdom, right? This sounds like the right thing to do. Don't go stay in a pagan city, stay in an Israelite city. But you'll see things don't go well. So what happens? They arrive in Gibeah, the sun's going down, and no one will let them stay in their home. Nobody invites them in. These are Israelites. He's an Israelite. He's a Levite. He's got his servant and his wife with him and no one will show them hospitality. No one took them into his house to spend the night. And then along comes an old man who happens to be an Ephraimite and he greets them and he takes them in. He says, peace to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. Now, this guy's words are prophetic. He is, he is making a prophetic statement and he doesn't even know it, but he knows the city really well. And he says, man, whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. It is not safe. Now, again, this is an Israelite city. These are people of God. And yet this Ephraimite, another Israelite, Israelite is saying, man, whatever you do, don't stay in the square because it will not be a good time for you there. And if you know anything about the scriptures, this is where this story takes on a, a flair, a flavor that reminds you of something. And we're going to see that Samuel, who's written this, is going back into the Old Testament to the book of Genesis in the Pentateuch, the very first book of the Bible. And he's borrowing from, he's literally plagiarizing a story from the book of Genesis. 
Listen to what it says in verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the Ephraimite, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Now, I shouldn't have to tell you this, but that word know there isn't talking about that we might get to know him, that we could become his friend. We're the welcoming committee for Gibeah. No, that word is the same word used in the Old Testament when it talks about Adam knew Eve, had sexual relationships with Eve. They want to have sex with this man, the Levite. These men are homosexuals. These men are uh, sodomites. And they are banging on the door and they want this Ephraimite to give that man to them so that they might have their way with them. Again, that should remind you of something. So what I've done, and this is in your handout uh, that you can download, but just take a look between Genesis chapter 19 and Judges chapter 19. And Samuel, the author of this book of Judges, is borrowing from the Genesis 19 account in order to tell the story of what's going on in Gibeah that night. You see in verse four of chapter 19 of Genesis, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Well, look at Judges 19. The men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house. Go back to Genesis. Where are the, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. You have the same phraseology in Judges 19, verse 22, that we may know him. It's a parallel story. Verse seven of Genesis 19, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. This is Lot begging the men of his city to not do what they are trying to do. In his case, the men he are, he's protecting are angels sent by God who look like men. Well, what happens over in Judges 19? The Ephraimite says, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Don't do this. You see the parallels going on here? Verse eight of Genesis 19, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. This is Lot, the nephew of Abraham, offering his daughters to these men in order to protect these two men in his home. Everything about this should be egregious to you. It should rub you the wrong way. And yet look at what happens in Judges 19. Behold, here are my virgin daughters, says the Ephraimite, and his concubine. Let me bring them out now, violate them, and do with them what seems good to you. So what, what is going on here? Samuel is trying to show the people of Israel just how bad things were in Israel at the time before the judges came. And it's as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, let's keep on. Verse 8 of Genesis 19. Only do nothing to these men. Judges 19, but against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Please, please do not do this. But the men in Lot's day say, stand back. The men in the Levite's day say, we're not gonna listen. We're gonna get what we want. We're gonna have what we desire. Now this is where the stories begin to take two different tracks because in the Genesis account, God intervenes, but he doesn't intervene in the judges account. Look at Genesis 19, 11. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, they being the angels. They strike these men blind, both great and small, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. They can't get in and they wander away. But look at verse 25 of Judges 19. So the man, the Levite, seized his concubine and made her go out to them. He shoved her out the door. He threw her to the wolves, so to speak. And they knew her, same word, 
and abused her all night until the morning. Then in the Genesis account, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. They rescued them. They saved them because God was going to keep them safe. But what happens in Judges? As the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. She is worn out. She has been totally ravaged and used up. And then it says her master rose up in the morning and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, not searching for her, not worried about her, no empathy, no sympathy, no compassion. Behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold dead. She had been ravaged literally to death. But look at Genesis. So the men seized him and his wife, the men being the angels, and they took Lot and his two daughters by the hand and the Lord being merciful to him, they brought him out and set him outside the city. See, in this case, God rescued Lot from Sodom. But in this case, the concubine dies. Who threw her out there? The Levite, the man of God, the servant of God. And every Israelite who read this story during the period of the Kings would have been appalled and they would have recognized the link between Genesis 19 and the story they're hearing about the Levite and his concubine. They would have made that connection and it would have driven them absolutely nuts. How could anybody do this? See, Samuel is comparing Gibeah with Sodom. And Sodom is like the poster child of wicked cities. And yet here we have Gibeah compared one city, Gibeah, is occupied by the people of God. The other one's occupied by pagans. You would expect one thing from the pagan city, but you certainly wouldn't, wouldn't expect it from the city being lived in by godly people. See, Genesis 18, 20 says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. This is God's statement against those two cities because of their wickedness. But if you fast forward into the book of Jude, the next to the last book of the Bible, listen to what Jude says. Don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the, of the eternal fire of God's judgment. See, when we look at this story, what we have to realize is that wickedness is wickedness, whether it's done by a pagan or a believer. In God's eyes, it's still the same thing and it's still deserving of punishment. And these people living in Gibeah, these Israelite men who did what they did to this concubine, who didn't get to do what they wanted to do to the Levite, but they took it all out on his concubine. These men were as wicked and evil and deserving of judgment as the people of Sodom. So as we read just a second ago, her master gets up in the morning, he gets ready to leave, he opens up the door, he's ready to head home, and there she is laying on the doorstep. Totally caught him off guard. Lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. Now listen to what he does next. This is incredible. He turns to her and he says, get up, let's get going. Now you, can you imagine what she looked like after a night of being ravaged by who knows how many men? And he says, get up. But she doesn't respond because she's dead. So what does he do? It says he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. He takes her home, laying across his donkey. 
And then look what he does. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. Now that's shocking no matter how you look at it. It's something we can't even relate to, but neither could the people of Israel. Look what happens. All who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel and speak. I think there's a couple of things being said here. We've never seen anybody do this. What? Cut up a woman and ship her body parts across to every tribe. There's no precedence in scripture. It wasn't part of the law. This wasn't required by God. God's nowhere to be seen in this picture. This is a decision this Levite made and the people have never seen anything like it before in their lives. Such a thing. We've never seen such a thing. See, I think what Samuel's trying to get us to understand is that this is an all-time low for the people of Israel. This is before the first judge shows up. This is before the kings. This is before anything. This is right at the beginning of their time in the land of Canaan, and they're already acting like sodomites. They're already acting in ways that are so contrary to the will of God. They're just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And see, again, the people of Israel reading this during the period of the kings would have heard this and would have been appalled by it, but it would have been a reminder to them of the nature of their ancestors and how they had inherited so much of that same mentality. When he cut up that concubine and distributed her body parts to the 12 tribes of Israel, it got everybody's attention, and you can imagine so. So what did they do? Chapter 20, all Israel comes together. They gathered together from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. That just is giving us a picture that everybody from everywhere gathered together, including in the land of Gilead. And they assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah and the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel are gonna present themselves to the assembly. And they're gonna draw 400,000 men, armed men who are ready to take it out on not just the men of Gibeah, but the Benjamites of who they were members. But what happens before that? They call this Levite to them and they say, tell us what happened. Tell us, how did this evil happen? They want to hear his testimony. And we're not going to go through, the, through this, but what's interesting is if you go back and read his testimony, he leaves out major details. And he paints a very bright picture of himself. He doesn't talk about why his wife left him. He doesn't talk about them wanting him, not her. He doesn't tell them that he threw her out to them. He just paints a glowing picture and he puts all the blame on the men of Gibeah. And they were blameworthy, but he's making sure that he doesn't get any of the blame. How did this happen? Well, once he tells them, it says, all the people arose as one man saying, none of us will go to his tent and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. They're going to take it out on Gibeah. But they're smart enough to at least send a contingent of men to the Benjamites. Benjaminites, remember the, Gibe the men of Gibeah are members of that tribe. They send a contingent to the Benjaminites and they say, hand them over. All the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man, and the tribes of Israel sent men through all, through all the tribes of Benjamin, saying, what evil is this that has taken place among you? They're basically turning to the Benjaminites and they're telling them, how in the world could you let this happen? And why are you not doing anything about it? 
And they say, now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows of Gibeah, turn them over to us, purge the evil from Israel. This is about the only time in this entire story that anything godly comes out of the mouth of anybody. They say that we may purge the evil. That is something God would want. Purge the evil from your midst. Take care of it, deal with it. Don't let it linger. Sin is always like a cancer. It spreads, it infects, it permeates. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. They refused. They go, no, we're not going to do it. We're not going to turn over these perpetrators. We're going to protect them. So what happens? Civil war. War breaks out between the tribes of Israel. Now get the picture. 11 tribes against one. The tribe of Benjamin was one of the smaller tribes. And yet they're going to go to war. And we're going to find out later. There's about 27,000 of them against 400,000 Israelites. Now you would think this is a lopsided battle. This is going to go in the favor of the Israelites. They're going to conquer them quickly. They're going to wipe them out. But that's not what happens. What's really interesting in the story though is the Levite begins acting like a judge. He's not a judge. He's a man of God, but he's not living for God. He's not acting as a priest. He's not living in one of the priestly cities. And yet he calls the people and he calls them to go, to go to battle against the enemy. But here's the sad part of this story. This guy's calling them to fight the Benjaminites, fellow Israelites, not Canaanites. Now, what happens when we move into the period of the judges? We saw the fact that some of those judges actually killed their own people for all the wrong reasons. So this guy kind of sets the precedence of what we see happening later on in the book. You see, he's left God out of the picture, just like they're going to leave God out of the picture. And everybody's going to continue to do what they think is right. He thinks he's doing the right thing. He's seeking revenge on the Benjaminites, but he never seeks God's will in it whatsoever. Everybody's in freelance mode. What do you want to do? We'll do it. Here's what I think we ought to do. Everybody's acting as if they're God, but never seeming to think what God would have them do. See, as we move through the story, what we see is that God becomes nothing but a tool to meet their agenda. And that's a dangerous thing for any follower of God, any believer in Jesus Christ to do is to use God as a tool for your agenda. To, to pray for him for the things you want, but never asking him what he would want. Is this your will? But that's exactly what these people do. And there's going to be three battles. And I think this is fascinating because, again, I think 400,000 to 27,000, it ought to be over in a heartbeat. But they go to battle. But what they do is they seemingly seek God's will. They say, who should go up first? In verse 18 of chapter 20, and God says, Judah. Same thing we saw in chapter one. Judah goes and Judah goes and the people follow and they attack and they're summarily defeated. They lose tens of thousands of soldiers to not one loss for the Benjaminites. It's a rout. It's, it's unbelievable. Nobody can understand why this is happening. So they inquire of God again and they say, shall we go up again? And God says, yes. And they go up in battle again and they're defeated yet again. And you can begin to understand they're becoming demoralized and they don't understand why this is happening. But this is where we see the will of God, the sovereign hand of God working in the story. See, they haven't wanted anything to do with God until they want God to help them accomplish their agenda. And it's interesting that two times God says, go, go. And they fail miserably. 
And the only difference between the first two battles and the third one is they come to God and they weep and they mourn and they offer sacrifices and they at least remotely begin to treat him like who he truly is, the sovereign God of the universe. And they say, shall we go up again? And he says, yes, go, the victory is yours. And they attack and they have victory. See, sometimes when we try to do things our way, we may have victory, we may have defeat. The danger with victory, if it's not God's will, is we'll begin to think that we have all the answers and we don't need God. If we suffer defeat, we may think that God has left us, that God has abandoned us, but it may just be that God's trying to teach us something, that he's trying to bring us to a point where we will truly rely on him and repent of our sins. But nowhere in the story do we ever see that. We never see the people of Israel truly repent. But we do see in verse 35 of chapter 20, and the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. God gave them victory, but it's a hollow victory. This is not what God would want. He never wanted civil war to take place between the tribes of Israel. But it says the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men and they're gonna wipe out the Benjaminites and they're gonna leave only 600 men alive. That's 600 men out of an entire tribe left alive because of what the men of Gibeah did and the retribution of the Israelites against the tribe of Benjamin. See, this is a sad story. It says they remained in hiding at the rock of Ramon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, men and beasts and all that they found and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. What happens here is they let the 600 go and they go back and they kill every man, woman, child, beast that belonged to the Benjaminites. They wipe them out. They destroy every one of their cities. It is over the top revenge. Well, that causes a problem. And we got one more chapter to go. So let's just review what we've just covered because we've covered a lot of ground. You see this Levite, the man of God, who's not living like a man of God is self-serving and he's unqualified. He has no business being a Levite. He's walked away from his calling. The men of Gibeah, those men who committed that heinous act are immoral and godless. And they deserve exactly what they get. The Benjaminites were prideful. They're stubborn. We're not gonna purge the evil from our midst. We're gonna protect our own. We're not gonna let the 11 tribes tell us what to do. Pride, arrogance, stubbornness. And the Israelites as a whole, the 11 tribes were very presumptuous that God was going to do what they wanted to do, never really asking God what he would want to do. That's self-righteousness. When you don't go to God and ask him what he would want you to do, you're the righteous one, not him. And what we see in these chapters is the sins are rampant and they're national in scope. They've pervaded every level of Israelite society from the religious community to the leadership to the tribes, it's not a pretty picture. This thing's, thing's a pandemic. You know, we're dealing with a pandemic right now. Well, this one was on a grand scale and it's all about sin. The sins of the people because they were doing what they thought was best and it's gonna get worse as we wrap up with the final chapter. They gather again, the Israelites, the 11 tribes, their leadership, and they come before God and here's what they say to God. Now catch this. 
O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? Now you gotta think really carefully what they're doing here. They know why it happened because of what the men of Gibeah did. They also know it happened because the men of Benjamin protected them. They know why it all happened, but they're asking God why. You ever ask God why? I guarantee every one of you during these last two to three weeks have been asking why God? Why is this happening? Why is our country suffering? Why are you doing this? See, that's a natural response, but what you have to understand is that they're not repenting for what they've just done. They're blaming God. They're saying, God, why did you do this? Why did you let this happen? Why did you let the men of Gibeah do this? Why did you let the Benjaminites do this? Why have you let this happen? It's a dangerous thing to shake your fist in the face of God and say, why? And blame him. Is God sovereign? Yes. Is God in control? Yes. But much of what we suffer as individuals, as families, as a nation is due to our own sin. Now, I'm not saying that this pandemic is, a cause, is caused by man's sin. It's because we live in a fallen world. But I am saying this, that it's dangerous for us to play God and blame God for something that we have actually caused. And so what they do is they begin to come up with their own solution. See, they had 600 Benjaminites left, and now they're grieving that they wiped out everybody. They wiped out all of the women, so they have no wives, so they can't per perpetuate their clan, their tribe. And they're going to lose one of the tribes, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, because they took it upon themselves to slaughter every man, woman, and child within the Benjaminite clan. And they had sworn an oath that none of us, none of the 11 tribes are going to let our daughters marry these men. So they were in a jam. They were in a pickle. So what do we do when we get into a pickle? We come up with a plan. They came up with plan B. We've really screwed it up. Now we got to fix it. And it's amazing what they do. It says, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword. Now, what in the heck is going on here? Well, there's a little meeting that they have trying to figure out what are we going to do with 600 Benjaminites who don't have wives. We've sworn we're not going to give them our wives. So they take a poll and they try to find out, is there any city among the 11 tribes that didn't come to war when we fought the Benjaminites? And it's Jabesh Gilead. They didn't send anybody. So what do they do? It says, they strike the city with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that is lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead, 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with them. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. So this is their bright plan B. We're going to wipe out another city and we're going to take their virgins, 400 virgins, and we're going to give them to these 600 Benjaminites. But see, it's going to get worse. And every time you and I try to solve our problems in our strength with our wisdom, it always gets worse. And that's exactly what we see here. See, they only got 400 potential wives. What's the problem? There's 600 Benjaminites. So 200 guys are left out. So they come up with plan C. That's what you always do, right? Come up with plan C. I can still make this work. And this one gets really weird in my eyes. What they do is they tell the Benjaminites there's going to be a festival coming up that all the tribes are going to participate in. 
and we want you to be in hiding. And when the young women come out to dance and this festival, we're not sure what it was. It doesn't sound like one of the festivals ordained by God. It sounds more like a pagan festival. But when these women, these young virgins come out to dance, you are to steal them. Stay in hiding. When they come out to dance, steal them. Who are they stealing them from? The 11 tribes of Israel. So this is the Israelites recommending to the Benjaminites to steal women from their own tribes. And they had all said, we're not going to let you have our wives. See, this is plan C. And it's getting really squirrely, really fast. And that's exactly what they do. But they, they tell the Benjaminites, don't worry. We know people are going to be upset. The fathers and the brothers of these young women are going to get upset. And when their fathers and their brothers complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us because we did not take for each man to, of them his wife in battle. In other words, we didn't steal them as plunder in battle. Neither did you give them to us. You didn't break your oath. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then watch what happens. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. The 600 men now have their 600 wives provided for them by the very people who wiped them out to begin with. And they go home and they began to rebuild their cities and their livelihoods. What about the people of Israel? They depart from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. They went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Everybody went back home. Remember, this is in 1375 BC at the beginning of the period of the judges. And it sets the stage for what's to come. This is how bad it is when Othniel shows up on the scene, the very first judge. And then of course it closes. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, this is the key to the whole book, right? This is not only the key to the whole book of judges, it's the key to the whole book of the Bible. That when men do what is right in their own eyes and they reject God as God and they reject the son of God, as the salvation provided by God for the sins of mankind, it never turns out well. And we always end up doing what's right in our own eyes. So here's your discussion questions for this week. And I know you can't get together, but I would encourage you to get on the phone, talk with one of your table mates, uh, table shepherds, use Zoom, use one of the, the, the many technologies available to you that we've sent to you and get together with your guys virtually and talk about these. Talk about these questions with your family, with your wife. But here's the first one. From your own experience, what are some of the things that can happen when you leave God out of the equation? When you just choose to decide that I'm gonna do life without him, I'm gonna make decisions without him, I'm gonna come up with plan A, plan B, plan C without God. What are some of the things that can happen that you've seen happen? Secondly, as we go through this current global crisis, what are some ways we, we may be tempted to forget God? And I know what you're thinking, Ken, I would never forget God at a, a time like this, but you do. I've talked to many of you. I've seen some of your posts on social media. You're fearful, you're angry. And when you have fear, you've forgotten your God. When you have anxiety, you've forgotten your God. When you post things that are detrimental, you're forgetting your God. So again, what are some ways you've been tempted to forget God? Are you getting up and spending time in the word? Are you watching these videos? Are you studying? Are you praying? Are you filling your mind with the truth of God's word through music and through the scriptures? Finally, I want you to spend some time reading Isaiah 55, six through nine. 
Why are these verses so relevant to our current circumstances and how should we respond to them? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this incredible book. I am so grateful that you led me to study it and that I've been able to teach it to these men. And I pray that you would take these final three chapters and bring them alive in our lives. Help us to realize, Father, that we too can be guilty of forgetting you, setting you aside, forgetting that you're all powerful, forgetting that you're all sovereign, forgetting that you have all things in your hands and you're not worried. And may, Father, we trust in you more than we trust in science and more than we trust in the media and more than we trust in the government. May May we respect those things that they're provided by you, but Father, our ultimate hope has to come from you. And so Father, bless these men, bless their families, keep them whole, keep them well, keep them safe in the days, the weeks, the months ahead. And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name, amen.